0: An incredible storyteller and bona fide crime junkie, journalist Jennifer Coker is the perfect combination of sunshine and grit. I'm Renee Nelson, and this is Unsolved Wyoming. Hey folks, thanks for joining me on this episode. I am excited to bring you the story of Jen Coker. I've worked with Jen now for the last year, and I credit her to strapping me in the driver's seat of this podcast. Without her, I don't know if I would be recording this now because when she got word some English teacher in Cheyenne was wanting to start a podcast, she contacted me to write the first piece of media on Unsolved Wyoming. And the rest is history. I've been working with Jen ever since. We collaborate, and her work is always a piece of source material for the cases I report. Like any good writer, she doesn't have a straight path. This is her story and take on the unsolved.
1: Thank you again for, you know, agreeing to do this. I've been wanting to do this episode or this, this interview for a while, and especially kind of now that things have settled down with Irene Gakwa's case, you know, although obviously not the answer we're looking for but I'm sure you know it's just kind of slowed down and just wanted to get you kind of like that post perspective of that I kind of wanted to start off getting you know knowing up more about you and so can you tell us about you where you're from where did you grow up where did you go to school
2: yeah I, I'm i actually from Pittsburgh and I lived there just in my very early years and we moved to Hamilton Ohio when I was four and that's right outside of Cincinnati so I grew up in Hamilton and then my parents got divorced and my dad moved to New York city. So I kind of split my time between this podunk little town in Ohio and New York city, which was mind blowing for a child, but oh also gosh. very good. Yeah. It was like two different worlds entirely. And uh, so that's how I spent most of my years. And then when I, got, yeah, it was, it was fun. And he had a very glamorous life in New York city too. So he hung out with cool people. And it it was just, it it was eye-opening for sure. And then um, I went to college at Miami in Ohio, in Oxford, Ohio. And I, there I studied English and I ended up getting a degree in journalism, but only because I was a fifth year and hadn't declared because I was super unfocused and and journalism was like the, I knew I went to English, but journalism was the easiest way to get there. Um, so, when I got out of school, I had one of my professors had uh, kind of taken me under his wing and said, You know, do you want this job at Dayton Daily News? And I was like, Absolutely not. I, I want nothing to do with journalism. Um, and that came from just, I, you know, I, I didn't know what it was really. Um, and I liked feature writing, but then I had to cover a city council meeting. And I was like, No, I, I hate this. So yeah, it's a little dry, right? Yeah. And I, I remember being so intimidated. There was a local reporter. We were students and there's a local reporter there who just stood up and challenged everything. And she was so keyed into issues and I knew nothing. And I was like, I'm so bad at this job. So <laughs> and instead, I went to, I lived in a ski town in Colorado for a couple of years. And after that, I got really bored, knew I wanted to do something in English, and I thought publishing was the way to go. So I moved to Portland, Oregon, and then I became, uh, worked in a bookstore and interned at a publisher and kind of got into uh, working in uh, publishing, and then also I became a book buyer. So kind of my my early years revolved around books and that industry. Fine.
1: Oh, my gosh. I love that. So... And I guess in a weird turn of events, how did you actually become a journalist?
2: Yeah, that, see, that's crazy. And so I, I, at some point I was in working in advertising. Um, I was at a dot-com in Portland, and that turned into a job. It, it was marketing, basically. Um, so I realized I, I just didn't – I was writing for a living, but I I wasn't enjoying it. So I started – I kind of deepened at the back of my recesses of my brain. I always wanted to be a writer, so I started um, uh, applying for graduate schools in creative writing and eventually got into university of Montana. So I kind of quit my whole job, sold the house and went to grad school for creative writing. And my goal there was to be a, I, I wanted to teach and write. And unfortunately I think like a, a lot of my life, I, I run, I, I end up in a position because I'm bad at another. So it, turns out that I loved fiction I loved the techniques of that but I was terrible with thought so I wasn't a good fiction writer (laughs) um and and so I I I was kind of at an odds of what to do and I was living and I had taken a job and I'm sorry I'm all over the place Renee (laughs) you're good this is fascinating (laughs) okay so uh, um after I, I had graduated from graduate school, I, I did two back-to-back graduate degrees, one in creative writing and then one in creative nonfiction. And that's kind of where I found myself in creative nonfiction. I really liked that format. And as somebody is terrible with plot, having other people's stories to call from was kind of the answer for me as far as uh, being able to write. And I still wanted to be an academia, but as you know, those jobs are so hard to come by, especially in the West. Mm -hmm. and um, I was living at the time in Montana, and I took a job teaching and not teaching as a para in a school in Dickinson, North Dakota, um, which I hated. I I just don't like K through 12. But um, anyway, it's it's so hard. Uh, So in, in being a para, it's like you're not the teacher, but you want to be. So it was just kind of just not a good fit for me. Mm -hmm. But I was randomly at a a Chinese buffet one day after school and I was, as is my tendency as a pathologically nosy person, uh, (laughs) to just grill strangers about their life history. And a man standing next to me was (laughs) just kind of listening to me and he said, you know, I," and he ended up being a publisher of the newspaper in Kildare, North Dakota, and he's like, you have just good instincts for – Journalism, and you're so wonderfully nosy. So he said, Do "You want a job in journalism?" I'm like, "Funny you say that. That was my undergrad degree." Um, so he ended up hiring me as managing editor. Which you should know, anytime you get a lofty title with no experience, that it's just going to be a, just a terrible, ju- <laughs> terrible job where you work a lot of hours and don't get paid much. Right. Which it was. Um, but I also have found my leg there because it, it's exciting. It, for for the first time, I was very excited about my job and keeping up with the news, and I found I really liked it, surprisingly. and
1: So you so, almost had to grow into your yeah. journalism career. Yeah,
2: I, yeah. And, you know, as a kid, I remember my mom when I first got my first journalism job at age, gosh, I had to be 37 when I got my first journalism job, and my mom said, I always knew you would end up in journalism because as a child, she called me Barbara Walters, which
1: (laughs) I didn't remember,
2: but since I'm nosy, that's (laughs) So she's like, you finally found your career. Yeah.
1: Uh, Sometimes I feel like, you know, it's like the (laughs) obvious thing that we should be doing. We don't do it because everybody's like, that's what you should be doing. like, I don't think so. I'm going to go do this other thing.
2: (laughs) I'm like, I'm going to do this other thing that I'm terrible at until I fall into it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah well i mean obviously it's worked yeah so i ended up from there i went i moved to douglas wyoming and being the managing editor it really burns you out so within a year i was burnt out i mean you're working seven days a week uh mm-hmm. long 14 hour days easy no holidays no breaks so when i moved to douglas wyoming with my boyfriend who had a position there um i said i'm not i'm out of news um, so I was I was teaching part-time at the Eastern Wyoming College, and I only had one class at the time, so I needed a second income. And so I went into the newspaper there and said, I will do advertising or something that's not journalism. But obviously, I mean, I, I was hooked, and I didn't want to admit it. So <laughs> within six months of being there, I, w- I ended up being a features writer. That's incredible. Sometimes, yeah, I,
1: I understand where, you know, you sort of fight this thing that you're natural at because for whatever reason, it just, you know, until it really clicks, then, you know, it feels right. So yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> well, So you went from features writing. When did you get, like, how did you get into writing true crime
2: pieces? Yeah, well, as a features writer, and then I was managing editor for a year, and again, it's one of those burnout jobs, so once you do it for a year, you're like, I will never do this again, and then I find myself applying again for a news job,
3: so I, <laughs>
2: <laughs> so for this one, I had got, uh, been uh, given a job in uh, Gillette, Wyoming for County 17, um, and I was just going to be their lifestyle features writer for a magazine they were running, um, which is no longer around, but I, for one of my stories, I saw an ad, or not an ad, sorry, a Facebook post about, uh, somebody had posted about uh, seeing some kind of symbol on their uh, bumper, and that implied that it was human trafficking. And this was in Gillette at Walmart. And I was like, what is human trafficking? I had absolutely no idea. And I'm like, people are, there's actually people are, leaving marks on people's bumpers and uh, abducting people in parking lots. So that just kind of piqued my interest, and I started looking into that, and of course later found that that was one of those Internet rumors, and that's not how trafficking works at all. But that led me into doing a whole series on human trafficking, and that's when I started doing that, it led to a natural segue to missing people, and then I met Desiree, of course. Um, right. I'm just seeing people in Wyoming. And from there, I just got hooked, just hooked on uh, missing person cases, cold cases. And it, it just seemed to me it was, I had no idea this stuff was happening. Right. And I, I, in, in talking to people, I realized that everybody else kind of thought that these rumors about human trafficking, what it is and isn't uh there seemed to be nothing being written about it either. So I, I saw that as an opportunity.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Well and your writing style for a true crime, it's so engaging and so I I definitely it well, was you. one of those things even before we, we, we got connected. And it's funny when you when you recognize I, I was reading your work prior to getting to know you. And so, you know, I was a big fan even before you know, started working with you. And so, I mean, it, it's a very natural fit, but it kind of follows that, you know, that nonfiction, you know, writing, obviously, you know, that reporting piece and the way that you bring the story together, you know, that's where your style comes in, right, that creative piece. And so I think it's a, it's been a great, great route for you.
2: Yeah, thank you. I, I really, I'm able to employ the techniques of narrative writing, which I find very exciting. That's that's what I'm drawn to when I'm as a reader, too, and also to put it together with this true crime, and it just, it's been, I, I feel like I've finally found, how old am I, I shouldn't say this on air, 55, <laughs> I'll be 55, <laughs> so I think in the last three years, I finally figured out what I enjoy, finally enjoy doing.
1: I love that, though. I think, you know, I interviewed Ron Francell not that long ago uh, about his newest book, death row right where it's a mm-hmm. it's a it's, you know it's a crime fiction you know he typically writes true crime but he didn't write his first fiction book until he was 41 you know yeah. and so it's, it was kind of this you know second this later half of life type of adventure that right, has led right. <laughs> into this amazing career for him and I, I, I think that these stories are so important to tell because so many young people feel as though if they don't have their life figured out by the time they're 25, they're failing in some way. And that's just not true. They just may oh not have found yeah. their thing yet.
2: I, I live my life that way. I'm like, holy cow, I'm not, what am I doing? And I I was always measuring myself up to some different standards. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not where I need to be, but I don't know where that is.
1: Right. I think that's definitely common, especially with social media and the ability to compare to where other people are age. Are in their lives and so that that can be really dangerous but I think right that's why these stories are so important to be hey I didn't start doing what I love doing until I was in my mid-50s or early 40s or <laughs> whatever it is so I think this is awesome
2: and so yeah, because I mean,
1: of that is true crime your favorite genre to write then
2: I, I believe it is it I I, I have really uh, I'm very drawn to it for whatever reasons. I think it's a, it, it these stories aren't it, – they're so complicated. I mean, from the criminals to the crime itself, it's, it, it's just not it, – it's like the most interesting part of the human condition, I think, in some ways. And right. I'm drawn to those contradictions. I'm drawn to, like, what edge makes somebody – you know, what makes somebody that way. I, I find them – deeply perplexing on multiple levels, even though it's crime, which can be so gritty and sad. Right.
1: Definitely. It's not it's not happy things to write about, that's for
2: sure. No, definitely not. But uh, And um, from the law enforcement standpoint, I, I'd love to see how they piece together and solve these crimes. Definitely. Also, so, yeah. And that's why I love podcasts like yours. I mean, I, I find this stuff just fascinating. Well,
1: oh, thank you. And I went to an event with you not that long ago, and I believe it was your editor who was talking about you as he was introducing you. And the way that he described you, I can't remember exactly, but it was so funny, because I related it to it so much in terms of, (laughs) you know, you have this really bright personality, but yet you're writing about some of the darkest, like you said, (laughs) grittiest parts of humanity. And you do it day in and day out and do it well and so what do you think about that kind of complexity of who you are that you are this incredibly bright person but at the same time you're writing about yeah the
2: worst parts of humanity (laughs) I've never really thought about it now that you say that but it's really true it's like I I, it's I don't find it dark and I don't know what that says about me I mean you know on one level it is dark of course based on the fact that it is crime and and these stories are horrifying, but the human aspect of it just intrigues me beyond belief. And I think that Jimmy Orr, my editor at Cowboy State Daily, calls me the death and destruction reporter. And he's like, I've never met anybody who thrives on this. (laughs) No, I don't (laughs) know what it is. Because I I don't come from a dark part. uh, You know, I don't have this in my background. I'm not a survivor of any kind. I just right. find yeah. just the the human condition, it just fascinates me.
1: Yeah. Well, and so that kind of brings me to my next question. So what's hard about writing true crime?
2: <laughs> well, and I, and I, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's not funny. Um, But I, I think the hardest part is I, it, there's a couple of different things. I, I think you have to, it, I, I try to be a force of good, and I'm not a headline chaser, so I don't come at this like, I'm going to break this story and be famous. I come at this like, how can I help? What, Whatever the case might be, particularly in missing person cases. So, uh, you, you know, I'm very cognizant when I talk to law enforcement and say, what what can I do to, uh, like, further your investigation without screwing it up? And I think that's a really hard line to toe because your editor is always pushing you one step further to, you know, reveal the next fact um, Mm -hmm. to advance the story. Um, And, but you have to remember what what your, what your true intention is. And for me, that's being a a source of good. Um, And and it's very hard to get information. I mean, just from a reporting standpoint, law enforcement and those in the legal community hate reporters, just they've for a variety of reasons. So it's really hard to make those connections Mm -hmm. and to get the information you need. Um, And I I think that would be from the writing standpoint, the hardest thing for me. Um, And I kind of detach from the crime itself. So I'm not, I, I don't get emotionally invested per se.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a healthy, probably a healthy thing that you need to do, right? Yeah, so, you do. Yeah, I think it is. And so because I find that, that if I personally don't have some type of distance, I'll think about these cases Yeah, when I need to be present with my kids or when I need to be present in the classroom, right? They can definitely yeah. become incredibly distracting. And so it's that kind of balance of mm-hmm. wanting to be helpful without losing yourself in it
2: exactly yeah and you understand i mean you you have the same philosophy i have as far as you know we we tell these stories because a we we these are people and they're they're more than their crime they're more than the fact they're missing um and and you want to honor those lives in their stories well,
1: and the families that are attached to the people. Oh too, my right? gosh,
2: exactly, exactly. And, you know, recently I, ju- I this week wrote a story about um, in the Irene Gakwa case about whether or not it's possible to try a, uh, or the difficulty in trying a murder without a body. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt like the biggest dirt bag and I reached out to her family and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm putting this out there. I, I and I, and I shouldn't say this to my editor, but I let them read this just to make sure they're comfortable. And I always want to give the family the last word on that because ultimately it's not about me. It's not about the publication. It's about the family and, and their loved ones. Um, right. And, and, and it's, but you know, you have to detach to a certain extent, but you you when you're talking blithely about, you know, this missing person, you always have to remember, well, that's somebody's sister, or somebody's yeah, you know, whatever you know, somebody's loved one.
1: Definitely. Well, and I think, you know, of course you have your keyboard warriors who don't necessarily think about those implications of when they speak out about a case and or specifically about, you know, and make accusations or victim blame. And Mm -hmm. I always wonder, I'm like, do they actually think that the family isn't reading this, that they don't see it? And so I I think it's a solid move in terms of, you know, ethical reporting to reach out to the family and engage them. And so I think that kind of brings me to my next question about, you know, compared to when you started writing true crime, which doesn't sound like it was that long ago to now, what has changed in true crime reporting?
2: Um, Now, are you talking technique or just in
1: the way I approach it? Well, I think maybe, like, more in terms of seeing the trends that we're seeing in true crime a little bit. And so you and I have talked about this before, about how, and and I think networks are becoming more in tune with this about, you know, not necessarily engaging in trauma tourism, but more in better ethical true crime reporting. And that, you know, we're trying to be, like, victim-centered or family-centered versus, celebrating serial killers and, you know, right. that perpetrator.
2: Right. So I just wanted to kind of get
1: your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I would 100% agree that that, that is a changing trend. And I, I think that uh, people still see crime as uh, it's, it, it always gets clicks. People are always going to read it. Uh, for whatever reasons, people like to read about crime. But I, I do think that there is less of the the glorifying of the gore. lack of a better word, but and more focus on the victim. And more empathy. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and also I see kind of a trend too, and I've talked to a couple of people about this, like a desire for a journalist to help, not be, Mm -hmm. not just break a story. Right. And I I,
3: I I think that's a huge...
2: Yeah, and I I think that that's still progressing and evolving, obviously, and and there's a long way for journalists and law enforcement to go where there's that trust. But I always tell law enforcement, like I don't know why you don't want to use me to help help advance your investigation. Like, y- you know, I could put stuff out that would generate leads or whatever, and and it, there's just such a hesitation on law enforcement's part. Definitely.
1: I, I totally agree. And it's been interesting because, you know, in my experience, you know, I'm reaching out to law enforcement and some of them will give me a quick comment of, you know, still active and open investigation. Right, That's right. all we can say. And they leave it at that. And then there's others where I've been leaving voicemails for them probably for at least, you know, two months. And mm-hmm. so, you know, just to get a comment, just to, you know, check in and yeah. nothing. So it is, it can be really yeah. frustrating. And yeah, so, and- I think there's this aspect, too, of maybe and, and because I think we're starting to see it in the media, you know, in the entertainment, that podcasters, uh, journalists, they're starting to be kind of like this weird extension of not law enforcement because that's not the right thing, but like that they're able to get into areas or get information that maybe other people can't. And I think yes. that's a good thing, but it's also maybe a little misleading
3: because mm-hmm. we're just
1: people too who are limited right, by our resources.
2: Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so. Absolutely. But there's a genuine, you know, this is where I think podcasters and journalists can kind of parlay into that uh, gray area where law enforcement, a lot of people are just naturally distrustful of law enforcement and they're mm-hmm. not going to submit tips to them per se. Right. Um, and, For fear. I, yeah. Yeah, and I I think there's such an opportunity for people like us to help, because uh, ultimately, I mean, that's why we're doing this. And 100%, which brings me to my next question, which is,
1: <laughs> when you're working on a cold case or an old
2: missing persons case, what's your goal? My goal is exactly that, is to help solve that cold case to, and some of these, you know, you look at them, I, I think all of these are solvable in on, on some degree. And from my experience, from what I've seen is there's a lot of botched investigations, not even botched, but missed opportunities in investigations that get passed on through uh, sh- very shorthanded police departments. Right. And as the technology evolves and... Uh, you, you know, you, you've seen this time and time again, when you get a super committed detective, that case gets solved. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. So, and I think that's, that's my goal is like to look at some of these older cases that, you know, both missing person, murder, whatever, and just say, okay, what what might've been missed and, and do your own due diligence as far as the reporting goes and, and re. re interview those same people and see what you can find without getting in the way of law enforcement, of course.
1: Right. I think that's a, I think that's a great goal. And absolutely. And I also think when we bring, when we refresh a case, right? So although it's been cold and and maybe it has been visited, that maybe it's been 15 years since it's last been revisited, that it could help somebody feel like it's time to talk about this case, or you know, to just bring renewed interest. I think really does help, you know, with the
2: moving of the dial on the case. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, you know, also kind of in holding law enforcement accountable too. You know, as far as okay, we're we're talking about this case again. It, it hasn't gotten forgotten. Um, and, and again, I don't, I don't in any way bash on law enforcement because I know that they have continually a, a huge case file always. Right. Um, and I, I and, and I think these family members too are just like, wait, it, it hasn't been solved for them and they're not satisfied. Yeah, it's hard. Part, it, it's so hard. And I can't imagine how hard that is actually. And, and I think that's what got me into missing person cases in general. It's like, a person go missing? You know, they just one day they're not there. It, and it, I, I think
1: that's what's so startling about it, right? And so and especially not necessarily more recent cases, but I mean as recent as two thousand where, you know, we have but we we weren't as in technology as we are in today, but it was still there and active. And so how how do people go missing today with the technology that we
2: have? It, exactly. and so it freaks me out too. Yeah, and, and there's nothing more tragic than these kids to go missing.
1: Right, and, it's and just gut
2: Yeah, yeah, and there's so many in Wyoming. I, you know, you're. I was shocked when I started investigating, looking into this, how many there are. They
1: mm-hmm. haven't been I, solved. I know, and the, and I think that's where, even though I, you know, try to keep myself emotionally as not closed up, but you know, try to let myself, you know, not get so invested to where I'm going to get hurt mm-hmm. those are the numbers that keep me up at night though right and so yeah, I'm you know, yeah. trying to figure out how how do we get everybody especially and and we've talked about this before the lack of representation and we have in terms of news coverage you know for you know marginalized identities and and the missing um indigenous population right it's yeah absolutely tragic.
2: And, and, and that's another, you know, when some people, and a lot of the people who are missing or who are involved in crime do have, you know, paths that make them less desirable in the eyes of society. For example, they might have substance abuse issues or or, or some vulnerability that that put them in harm's way. And I, I think they're not society's cast-offs. I mean, these are people who are important whose stories are important and I, I think just even elevating them above you know their circumstances is very important. I I totally agree
1: I don't think people recognize how close most of us are to that to being in a very similar situation as that individual. Absolutely. You
2: Absolutely.
1: know, and so, you know, rather we go in for a surgery and our prescribed uh, you know, medication that we don't know how we're gonna react to it. You know, addiction can happen to anybody and Absolutely. you know uh homelessness can happen to anybody. Yep. I mean, nobody is, you know, one hundred percent safeguarded against that except for, you know, people who have a lot of resources. And even then you still see addiction and affluent, you know, people it's 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 everywhere right. so so it's it's really frustrating when we have these societal misconceptions and kind of lies that we tell right and we don't mm-hmm. we don't see ourselves in those people absolutely it's, so you have been reporting on the irene gawkla missing persons case for almost the last i want to say nine months ten months and um, a year maybe and so it's it's been, I know, it's been a huge part of the work that you've been doing for a really long time. Just recently, we've had a update in terms that Nathan Heitman, Irene Gakwa's reported fiance, has been has pled guilty and is now going to be serving. Well, we don't know what what he's serving yet, right? His his sentencing hasn't happened quite yet, but is going to be reporting to prison for, you know, an undetermined amount of time. What's it been like up close in reporting it and then seeing where things are now with it?
2: Uh, yeah, that was, um, I, felt this was one of those, it happened right in my town, of course. So I I was a little bit late to uh, the fact that she was missing. And then when I went on the first search with uh, a, a group of locals here who are just leading the charge to find her. I was absolutely blown away by the citizen citizen activism in this particular instance. Uh, And I don't know about you, Renee, but I'm not terribly generous with my time. Yeah, we're busy people, right? (laughs) We're busy people. And I hate to say it, but I tend to be on the self-centered side. And to see all these people come out and and spend their Saturdays looking for and to care so much, was mind blowing to me and so this is the first time I've ever actually physically searched for a person and in this case a barrel or whatever it is any kind of clues um so uh that that was very eye opening to me to actually be on the ground not not just at my desk writing but to actually be out and to be among the family um, and in this case, I, I've watched it evolved, and I have to say, it, it's, I, I think, a large part because of the cry, at, the outcry, in this case, from these local citizen, citizens citizens and the family that has pushed the dial on this. Um, and it's been very rewarding to be right on the front lines watching, you know, to, to see actually a, a conviction of guilt, for example, and... To see this case move forward and granted she's not found we we don't know where she is yet but there there is some sense of justice in that conviction for for of nathan heitman
1: absolutely and i, I know you're good i know that that's perfect that's a great great response because and because that next part is kind of a one-off, but I know you just recently sat down and talked to, I think, was it, was it the city prosecutor for Gillette and about, you know, like moving forward with this case or what that looks like or was in the next steps for Irene Gauqua's, um, you know, missing persons case. And w- what what did you find out there?
2: As far as the murder without a body conviction? Right. Yeah. I didn't realize how um, difficult it is to actually because it, it, a lot of people, I mean, the guilt is in, and in everybody's innocent until proven guilty. And I, in no way, want to uh, in, imply that Nathan is guilty of her, in any way, of her disappearance, because Great. I simply don't have those facts. But um, to, assuming she is dead, to not have that body is a huge, huge uh, burden for law enforcement to bring forth a conviction. Um, and I didn't realize how hard that was. Because if you right. don't have the, – the body is in itself a crime scene. Um, it, you know, it tells the manner of death. It tells um, – it, it, you know, it, there can be, like, the, the mode in which that person died, and then there can be evidence that directly ties that, you know, DNA and whatnot to the perpetrator. But without that, it's really – hard and what surprised me most was the issue of jurisdiction um, because without a body you can't even prove it happened in a particular town so if you don't even have that jurisdiction to try a case in or bring forward a, a, any kind of charges then you can't so it's so I think so, law enforcement's up against a huge burden of proof here but I do believe that they have they they know a lot. They're not telling anybody. I, I think this investigation is uh, very far along, and they're very tight-lipped for good reasons. Right. But I I think they know a lot more than they are saying.
1: Right, because I know that at one point. Right, and and not to then you know sit here and stew on the Iron Gakwa case, you know. But I knew at one point that they, you know, there was evidence or some quite t- some type of questionable evidence that was reported in a field search, right? And we never heard about what that was. And then, yeah. as well as the FBI raid and the um, exactly. with, along with local PD that happened in October, and have yet to hear anything from those findings. So, to me, yeah. that does indicate that there is still an, an ongoing investigation and an active investigation because there hasn't been any divulgence of information.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And they have everything at this point is sealed. So, the first warrants in the affidavit that was available and now everything since, that, including the FBI uh, or investigation at the home, is now sealed. So, nobody... Knows what prompted that search,
1: right? Oh and, gosh, That's yeah.
2: And the reason they did that is because of all the media attention. Because, as you know, the story has gone national and international at this point right. as well. So right. That was enough for them to convince the judge to seal everything. Because it makes sense. nosy reporters like myself can potentially <laughs> <laughs> get in their way. <laughs> so, Get that
1: <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, so it's kind of like the bringing it full circle, right And so you know we met through Desiree Toco who's the founder and administrator for the missing persons of Wyoming Facebook group and when I dove into doing a podcast, I actually credit you a lot to kind of saying like oh you're gonna start a podcast and grabbing my hand and making me run with it <laughs> when you did that. Yeah, absolutely. Me, I <laughs> and so, but I stumbled upon this incredible group of women um, in this area of advocacy, you know, including yourself, Desiree, um, you know, Katie at DCI. I mean, it's a it's a big group. And it's been incredible. Mm-hmm. What has been your experience in kind of – in this area of true crime reporting and and true crime advocacy work that we're doing that it's
2: largely women. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, And I I, I think it's a space where there's zero competition, which I find absolutely refreshing. Uh, It's not like who gets the headline, who gets the information. And it's like, let's share equally. Let's bring this, let's do all we can as a group. Females, (laughs) Of females, <laughs> and there, there are some men. I, I, the DCI, I think, in your experience too, they have, have been really on board too, um, yes. as far as cold cases, and I think they're 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 above and beyond um, as far as understanding yeah. our mission and mm-hmm. supporting it um, to the extent that they can. But it has been the most amazing thing. I've never met such a cool group of women in my life who are <laughs> who are just kind of. In, in a competition free space where we just want to help each other, and we also for the sake of these cases right and the family and it's just super refreshing,
1: yeah, there's very little ego right yeah little ego.
2: It's incredible
1: yeah. it's incredibly supportive
2: yeah and and that goes from you know uh Kara chambers and the victims' services i mean everybody is just behind this mission and it's Extremely cool today. It it's a very cool club um, to be a part of. And I, a special shout out to Desiree. I, I, I think of her as this person who I, I think is just probably the kindest-hearted person I've ever met, and who's just so selfless too. Um, and oh, I, I think I, I think she's kind of at the heart of all of this.
1: I totally agree. I think she's been an amazing orchestrator in all of this and, you know, that she has, you know, she's kind of at the the center of, you know, oh, I need to connect you to this person. Let me send an email or let me give you a number and I'll text them and let them know that you're going to be calling or texting. And so, yeah, I mean, without her connecting me to you, I don't, I don't know if my podcast would be, you know, where it's at today. So I, yes, I I totally agree. Special shout out to Desiree.
2: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, I mean, she introduced me to you. Yeah, she, and she's just like, you have to meet this woman. Let's share cases. Let's uh, combine effort. I mean, it's just really amazing.
1: She's gonna hate this episode, by the way. I know. <laughs> I know.
2: <But> she, <laughs>
1: we're we very type women.
2: <laughs> I, I know. She has to take it though, because she's just so awesome and so. She really is. I I just can't say enough good things about it. From the first time I met her, I'm like, you are doing amazing things. She's like, what do you mean? I'm just a housewife. I'm like, oh, my God, you're not a housewife. (laughs) Right. If
1: only she could see herself the way we see her. I know. Well, that brings me to my next and last question. So if money, time, education wasn't an issue, and you could wake up doing what you think is your dream Occupation tomorrow? What would it be?
2: FBI profiler. I love that. I, I I I love the whole idea of it, right down to the dark suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I get it. it I it, had I had I found my calling earlier. I it just that's what I would be,
1: but definitely still connected to the crime aspect.
2: Yeah, yeah. It, it just. It, it, it get, I just I'm fascinated by human nature in general and I think that's what drives it. even the dark stuff I, I find interesting
1: yeah I, I and, definitely consider myself a student in terms of just I want to know more I want to know why you know and I think it's preventative too right like how can we help other people avoid absolutely. this situation
2: yeah yeah and, and solve crimes and potentially keep people from committing them Oh, gosh, what a world. Right.
1: Well, Jen, thank you so much for committing your time today to this interview that has been long overdue. (laughs) I think (laughs) (laughs) think the people of Unsolved Wyoming are going to love hearing about you because you're, I think, hyperlinked in almost, like, all of the cases that I've covered from your work (laughs) to put a person to – that byline, I think, is going to be really, really important.
2: Well, I appreciate you letting me blather on. I can do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I I just thank you for the work you're doing, and I really appreciate the partnership between us and Desiree and all the other crime fighters, do we call them? We'll call them. Yeah, I can definitely <laughs> give you the name.
1: Crime fighters can yeah. definitely be on the table. <laughs> so, yes, well,
0: have a wonderful rest of your afternoon. Good, good
3: afternoon,
0: Desiree. How are you?
3: I'm doing good. How are you? Fantastic. What cases do you have for us from DCI? Sure. So, as you know, we didn't record the last week. So, we have two full weeks worth here. And it's been fairly quiet because we had such bad weather here in Wyoming. Over the last two weeks, both the Cheyenne Police Department and Rock Springs Police Department asked for assistance via Facebook in locating several juveniles. All were found shortly after. It's great to see them utilize uh, Facebook to, you know, resolve some of these cases so quickly. The Mills Police Department is asking for assistance via Facebook in locating Christopher Caster. He's 6'1", 210 pounds was last seen wearing blue jeans and a black jacket. If you have any information, please contact the Mills Police Department at 307-266-4796. A post made its way to the Missing People of Wyoming group regarding a missing juvenile from South Dakota. Micaiah Canfield was last seen April 11th at 6 p.m. in St. Ange, South Dakota. Although she's missing from South Dakota, she may possibly be in Sundance, Gillette, or Rosette, Wyoming. She does not have her phone, but she did log into her Snapchat sometime on April 11th and was letting friends know she was safe, but not saying where or who she was with. Last location pinged off her phone on Snapchat, showed she was in Sundance. If you have any information, please contact Bella Police Department at 605-892-4354 or Butte County Sheriff's Office at 605-892-3324. Six cases have been removed from DCI's database from the following counties, one from Natrona, three from Laramie, one from Sweetwater, and another from Converse, and one case has been added to the database. Marcus Clark, age 16, was last seen April 3rd in Cheyenne. He's a black male, approximately 5'9", 140 pounds, with brown hair and eyes. He was last seen wearing a red hooded shirt with black and white tie-dyed pants, Anyone with information, please contact Cheyenne Police Department at 307-367-6500. And of course, with all cases, you can contact Wyoming DCI at 307-777-7181. They also have the option to submit tips anonymously on their website.
0: Fantastic, Desiree. Thank you so much. And just wanted to remind people, even though we're having these kind of spurts of nice weather, right? It was 80 degrees here on Tuesday, but it's a snowing again today, which is the Wyoming way, is to make sure that we are keeping those winter kits in our cars just in case while traveling. And I know you mentioned too, it doesn't matter what season it is, we should always have an emergency kit in our car because we just never know what's going to happen.
3: Yeah, always be prepared, especially in Wyoming especially with people that are tend to go on more rural roads and, you know, hunting and camping, you want to, you want to be extra safe with that and keep that stuff available on hand.
0: Absolutely. Well, have a great weekend, Desiree. Thanks for joining me this week, folks. I love bringing new episodes about people who are working in the field, who are helping report the crimes, who are helping telling the stories, who are working on the front lines. And I will continue bringing these stories to you because I think it's really critical to know who these people are who are devoting their time and or, you know, their professional skill set to helping people in Wyoming. Until next time.